This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. My guest today, Gonzalo Garcia, wears two hats at the firm. The first is as Global Co-Head of Natural Resources in our Investment Banking Division, and the second is as Co-Head of our business in Latin America. We'll be chatting about key issues across all of his responsibilities today. Gonzalo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So you've got a big job. Let's start with one piece of it, natural resources. That's a sector that's undergoing significant change. A large part of your job is advising CEOs of global power and utility companies. What are the key trends that CEOs are focused on right now? That's a good place to start and a very good question. I think we are looking at a once-in-a-generation secular change in the way we produce power. And that's having very profound implications to the industry worldwide. Ever since humanity started to use electricity as a convenient way of delivering energy to homes, we've been producing it mainly by burning fossil fuels. If you take a snapshot, say, a couple of years ago, around 70% of the power that we consume is produced by burning fossil fuels, that is oil, gas, and coal. A few years back, led by Europe mainly, politicians and regulators decided to encourage the migration towards renewable energy, mainly wind and solar, basically driven by climate change concerns. And we're now looking at a very different picture. So by some estimates, in the next two or three years, the share of renewable energy would have increased significantly, around 10% in a five-year period. 10% of the world electricity consumption is a lot of megawatts. (laughs) (laughs) It's all of Europe, right? Just to put that in perspective. I think there were some people that resisted the change. By now, I don't think anybody is fighting it anymore. I think people are, to different degrees, embracing the change. And I think that we're moving very steadily to a world where most of the energy will come from renewable sources. Obviously, we've talked a bit on this program about the change in the transportation sector as well, but they're related. So if we see more battery-operated cars adopted, we're going to need to see new infrastructure for electric vehicles. How are clients thinking about that shift in the technology, and how soon might we see that infrastructure become the new normal? People ask this question all the time. They say... You know, the transition to electrical vehicles is going to be very difficult because we don't have the infrastructure. I mean, if you think about it, when we started to produce and use combustion engine vehicles, there wasn't infrastructure in place. The infrastructure was built. There were gas stations. There were no (laughs) gas stations anyway, exactly. So the infrastructure was built from scratch. So there's no reason why we couldn't do the same for electricity. Now, as it happened, I don't think that the infrastructure is going to look like that. I think it's going to look very differently. So... If you think about technology today, we can charge our phones wirelessly. And there are people around the world who own kinds of work and research around what we call electrical highways that would charge the vehicles as they drive. So I don't think rolling out the infrastructure is going to be a constraint for the rollout of electrical vehicles. I can't tell you how that infrastructure is going to look But I don't think it's going to look like petrol stations today with electricity charging points every so many kilometers because the cars need to stop to recharge. I think it's going to look something different. Another thing that's getting a lot of attention is the digitization of the electrical grid. Explain to us what that means and what the implications are for the clients you have in the sector. 
when you think about the complexity of an electricity network where, say there's a football match, you have millions of people turning on the TV at the same time, and that produces a huge spike in the consumption of electricity, or you have a snowstorm that hits a line and you need to reroute the electricity or you need to find alternative sources to produce electricity, and then multiply that by thousands and thousands on wind farms and solar farms that could be working one minute and not working the next minute because the wind is not blowing. So the grid needs to react to all of those changes instantaneously. Digitalization allows, distributes the ability for the grid to react to the new information and make the necessary changes and adjustments at the speed that it is required so that we as users continue to have reliable supply of electricity. And who's incentivized today to invest in that? Is it the utilities themselves or the governments or some combination of the two? So networks are natural monopolies. I mean, it would be inefficient for us to have competing providers of electricity infrastructure and having multiple wires coming to your home. You only have one wire coming to your house. So that's why it has to be regulated. Regulation works slightly different in different parts of the world, but most regulation basically rewards the investment. So you have some kind of central planning that decides what type of infrastructure needs to be built and approved. The companies build it, and then they get rewarded by being allowed to charge for the usage of that infrastructure. When you think about what's happening today with the growth in renewables, we have to expand those networks. In Europe and increasingly in the U.S., we're going to start seeing offshore wind farms. So these are things that are installed miles off the coast. You need to connect them to the grid. That's when the regulators come in and provide appropriate incentives for the private sector to build those lines, knowing that they will get a return on that investment by allowing people to use that infrastructure. But it's a monopoly. In most cases, it's a monopoly. So they... The network companies are granted the right to use that monopoly for a certain period of time in exchange for building it. The transition to a low-carbon economy is having some profound effects on the sector. Talk about how your clients, many of whom are large European utilities, are viewing growth opportunities in renewables today. When governments started to introduce incentives for people to build renewable energy, a number of people were skeptical. There were a few visionaries that actually said, this is the future. Other people were very reluctant. In some cases, they even fought it and said, no, no, this is not going to work. We're always going to burn gas or oil or coal. And it took them a while to get convinced. Today, I don't think there's anybody that doesn't think of renewable as an important growth sector that is gradually going to replace the fossil fuel generation fleets. And in fact, Most people today are going a step further, particularly in Europe, and they're getting rid of the fossil fuel generation assets because they just don't see it as part of their core business anymore. I mean, when you think about it, this company had made a good business out of building these big fossil fuel plants for 100 years, and suddenly they're here saying, okay, that's not the future anymore. We've got to switch mentality and we've got to learn how to build and develop this new renewable generation facilities. Very big shift in business. So threat and an opportunity. opportunity. So obviously the debate on climate change and global warming has been going on amongst policymakers for decades. But when was it that your clients in what was a very traditional conservative space first started treating this as a business decision and something they needed to 
think about it and integrate into their planning? This is something that people have been debating for quite a long time. And although my clients and CEOs and boards have always kept an interest in this, it only became real less than a decade ago when politicians and regulators put in place very specific incentives to go and build wind farms or build solar farms and started penalizing fossil fuel generation in the form of a carbon tax. So it became a business issue because whether they like it or not, those incentives were there. They could either ignore them, they could fight them, or they could take advantage of them. And there was a multiple of reactions to those. But I think if you look at the history of that, it's a good lesson also for other geographies, certainly in Europe, the early adopters, the people that embrace the change, were big beneficiaries of the change because they jump into a growing trend very early on. They acquire expertise and they're now the leading players in the sector. Those that fought in the first place and took the view, we've been producing electricity from burning coal for the last 100 years. Nothing's going to change. We're going to still be burning coal 100 years from now. Those people had to change their position and they're now building wind farms, but they are five, 10 years late in doing so. So it was a very serious debate, certainly in Europe, where this all started in a big scale for a couple of years at the board level because people had to make hard decisions about where to invest. Do I build another coal plant or do I build a gas plant or go into renewable energy? And do I have the right people to do that? Are the people that build my coal plants the same guys that I need to go and develop wind farms or solar farms? And the answer is no. I mean, there are obviously some exceptions, but by and large, this has meant completely rethinking the way the generation business looks like. One of the challenges that renewables face is that they're intermittent by nature. And on top of that, events like natural disasters can make it difficult to keep the lights on. How are your clients responding to the need for power resilience? There are two aspects to it. First one is the intermittent nature of some of these renewable generation. Wind farms is the best example, right? Because if the wind doesn't blow, they don't produce anything. We talk about how smart grids help with the issue and they somehow find alternatives way of finding other ways of producing electricity when the wind is not blowing a certain part of the grid. As we increase the amount of power that comes from these intermittent sources, the ability of the grid to react and adapt uh, is going to become more and more important. I think the bigger issue is what happens when there's just not enough of that renewable energy? So what happens in a scenario where, say, in a normal day, 100% of the electricity is produced by these intermittent sources, and suddenly the wind just doesn't blow? Then what do you do then? I think there are two solutions. The short-term solution is that you have some old-fashioned plants that are on standby, and you switch them on when there's no wind. And this is why most people think about gas as a gap fuel, because you're going to need those gas plants for a while just in case the wind is not blowing. I think the long-term solution is probably going to be around technology developing to a point that makes storage efficient and commercial, which is not the case today. Large-scale storage for electricity is still very expensive and bulky, so it's not a practical solution to this issue. What are the key regulations catalyzing changes in the power and utilities landscape? Probably the most important initiative, and it was driven by sentiment coming from the population around global warming and what we're doing to the environment in terms of carbon emissions. So that in turn 
got translated into political will to actually do something about it. And I think probably the most important foresight there was to subsidize the development of some of this renewable energy initially, hoping that human creativity and entrepreneurship was going to drive the cost down to a point where the subsidies were not going to be necessary anymore. Today, subsidies are rarely necessary. So most of these renewable wind farms or solar farms can be built without any need for subsidies. That wasn't the case to start with. So that was a very important area where government intervention actually was a good thing. I know it's a controversial thing to say. We're going to get to <laughs> the divergence between the U.S. and, and Europe well, next. I, but I do think that this is one of those cases where burning fossil fuel creates a big negative externality. So it probably makes sense for governments to promote a change away from that. But then once you have that in place, there are a number of implications for the way the markets are regulated. And regulators, frankly, are a bit catching up with that. So go back to the example I mentioned before. You need a bunch of gas plants to be on standby just in case the wind is not blowing. Well, nobody's going to build a gas plant just to be used maybe when the wind doesn't blow as a backup. So you need to pay those guys in a different way. You're not paying them to produce electricity. You're paying them just to be available. And that's something that requires a change in the way people are compensated today in most markets. Away from the pure tariff system. So let's talk a little bit about the divergent approach between the U.S. under the Trump administration and Europe. Is that changing the way CEOs are viewing their energy needs and planning for the future? I don't think I have a good answer for that because if you talk to the CEOs of some of these global companies that got into the renewable train early and they saw it as an opportunity and they roll out their resources and their expertise and put capital to work. I think they've done very well and they're very happy with that. Those same people are now saying the U.S. is the biggest electricity market in the world. The U.S. consumes, for some metrics, about 25% of the electricity that's generated in the entire world. It's a big market, way beyond the relative size of the population. So a lot of those companies are saying, you know what, the U.S. is going to have to do this, whether they like it or not. So they are getting into the U.S. market and growing their presence in this market because they're saying we cannot miss being in the biggest market in the world. You have a number of the European firms that have made big inroads in the U.S. market, and they will continue to do so. At the same time, you will hear that all of the chief executives complain about the fact that the U.S. seems to have mixed feelings about it. But I think the speed of the change could be accelerated by providing more certainty around the future, which is what we found in other markets around the world. Certainly, the European market sure, is a very good yeah. example. In light of all those industry dynamics, this year, 2018, is expected to be a record for both oil and natural gas production in the U.S. Tell us why. There's a very different reason behind that. I think the U.S. discovered the ability to extract shale gas and shale oil at a reasonable cost. That gas and oil has always been there, by the way. So it's not that suddenly people discovered that this oil and gas was trapped in this rock formation. They always knew it was It just wasn't economic. It wasn't economic to take it out. So technology developed. The reason why the U.S. is producing so much is because they can produce at a cost that is below the global cost of the alternative. And it's as simple as that. 
also the nature of this oil and gas development is different from the mega developments that you see in other parts of the world where you need to put billions of dollars on the ground before you get a barrel of oil out and then you're committed for the next 10, 20 years to amortize your investment. So in the U.S., the upfront expense that is required to drill one shale well and the life of that well is very, very short. So you can get your money back faster. So you get your money back faster. So if you see a good market out there, you produce and you just sell it. And then you lock in the margin. So it's somewhat apart from all these big trends that we've been talking about. I think about. so. Yeah. I think so. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another part of your job here at Goldman, which is you're focused on identifying growth opportunities in Latin America. You obviously can't talk about Latin America without talking about Brazil, yeah. the region's major economy and one that's just starting to emerge from a pretty deep recession. How are our clients viewing Brazil right now? Big opportunity. Brazil is a big economy. You're right, it's coming out of a couple of years of deep recession and also the downturn in the commodity market. So that also had an impact in Brazil. Brazil relies heavily on commodities. Last year was better. I've seen the GDP was marginally positive, but big difference compared to the negative GDP growth we had in the previous two years. And this year, we expect the economy to start growing again. At the same time, we've seen very big political developments in Brazil. It's been well publicized that there have been some big corruption scandals in Brazil that have tainted businesses, politicians. So there's the need for renovation. And I spent a lot of time in the region there talking to a number of people. I don't think anybody disagrees with the need for a change in the way business is done, in the way politics is done. And uh, everybody thinks that that change is underway. With those two things in mind, I think people are now looking at Brazil and saying, OK, what is the right moment to go back in? The real test is when the hard investment comes in, foreign direct investment comes in. Major corporate Major investment. corporate, Exactly. Everybody's interested. Everybody's watching. I think this year we may see a big change. Everybody's also watching the results of the presidential elections that are going to take place later this year. So I suspect some people are going to want to wait until that before making big decisions. But it's in everybody's radar screen. So natural resources are a big part, not just in the Brazilian economy, but to some extent Chile, Argentina, a lot of Latin America. So what are the big opportunities that people are seeing in the Latin American energy space right now? A lot. Just to give you a sense of how relevant natural resources are, if you think about our investment banking business, around 40% of the investment banking business we do in Latin America is natural resources related. So it's a big part of our business. And the opportunities are in multiple countries and multiple subsectors within natural resources. Obviously, mining has always been very relevant. There are a number of good deposits in places like Peru, in places like Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela, perhaps they haven't been developed at the speed that they would have been developed had the political situation been more stable. So we expect to see a lot of money coming in and taking an interest in developing those deposits. Energy is another good example. We talk about shale gas and shale oil in the U.S. before. Well, Argentina by some metrics, has the third largest deposits of shale, oil, and gas in the world after the U.S. and China that are largely unexploited up until now. Why? Because the infrastructure that you require to exploit them is actually pretty significant. You need to get that oil and gas to markets, and that takes pipelines and, and all of those things that already existed in the U.S. They don't exist in Argentina. 
and that requires a big upfront investment. So again, with the new political stability in Argentina and a more business-friendly government, I think it's quite likely we're going to see that industry take off. Those are just two examples, and there are plenty of other examples of things that we're beginning to see a lot of interest in the region. Goldman hasn't been historically as big a player in that region of the world. You took over the leadership of the business last year. Talk about the strategy you're pursuing to build up our presence in Latin America. It's a tough market for us for a couple of reasons. One, there are a couple of our U.S. competitors that have a long history in the region. They've been there for a century, and they've been there in a big way. So they have big local presence, good knowledge of the local companies, and good understanding of the risks involved. In a way, they're brand names in some of these markets in the way that perhaps we haven't been. We have been, I think, historically perhaps more opportunistic about the kind of business that we wanted to chase. We've done well with that strategy, but the effect of that is that Gomas is not seen in the same way that Gomas is seen in the U.S. or Western Europe. In the developed markets where we've been operating for a long time, like in the U.S., Goma has a franchise, Goma has a brand. The brand stands for somebody that provides advice and is a trusted long-term companion in terms of providing financial services to their clients. I don't think that's the view that most people have of Goldman Sachs in Latin America. Given my background in investment banking, I'm a big believer in building that franchise because I think it has a value. So therefore, my first job taking on this assignment was to rebump our client coverage strategy and to work with the team and say, okay, who are the people that we actually want to get close to? Which are the companies that we want to develop a relationship with? And then focus on that. And focus on that not because we see an immediate opportunity, but because we think longer term, these are the companies that are going to require the type of services that we provide. And we want to be in a position when they decide to do something, they think of Goldman Sachs as the natural place to go to. We're beginning that journey. The how is very easy. The execution is not. It's not not that easy. Maybe that leads into my final question. What's been the biggest professional challenge you faced as you expand your role from natural resources into Latin America? (laughs) That's a good one because I have to say, going in, although I have obviously some visibility over Latin American business because over the years, given... I'm Chilean and obviously have strong links with the region. I've always kept an interest and I always fly in and out. And every now and then people will ask me to do more in Latin America and I will kind of do a little bit and help in a transaction here and there, but never in the way that I've been doing it for the last year. I think perhaps the biggest surprise, and in high it shouldn't have been a big surprise, is a bit of what I was saying before, how different the culture and the DNA of Goldman Sachs in the region is from the DNA and culture of Goldman Sachs in New York or in London or some of our other things. Almost like a startup there? or the, Yeah, I mean, and, I, and I guess this is why I say in hindsight, I guess it should have surprised me because you get a bunch of smart people and we have some very good people in the region and you tell them to make money and you give them some rules. I think they follow the rules, but they also develop their own way of making money. And there's no reason why it needs to look like the way we do it in New York or the way we do it in London. But I'm a big believer that There's a reason why we have the position that we have in the markets where we operate. And it comes down to the culture, the way we interact with our clients, the way we interact with each other, the way we think about our commitments. 
what we do and what we don't do, our procedures, sort of you name it. I couldn't really be more specific, but after 18 years in the firm, I guess I know what the Goldman Sachs way is. And uh, I'll be happy if at the end of my tenure in Latin America, Goldman Sachs Latin America looks more like Goldman Sachs New York or Goldman Sachs London, because I'm sure longer term is going to guarantee that we're going to be able to get to the position we want to get to and stay there. All right, Gonzalo, thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on January 17th, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.